0: One of the first lessons I learned in music industry school was musicians go up with coats on, and then halfway they take it off so that it lets people know how hard they're working. (laughs) I'm kidding. Okay. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter, and we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 7. Welcome to uh, everyone. Uh, Welcome to, to all our guests and everything like that. It's really nice to see lots of new faces this morning. And uh, for those who have not been here with us, we've been in the book of First Peter. And we've been studying this beautiful letter that Peter wrote to a collection of churches in a part of the world called Asia Minor, Minor at the time. And it was written to these people as a source of encouragement and a source of hope for them as they suffered through a lot of different things. And so over the last um, couple of weeks, we've been seeing... Uh, Peter's design, or I guess God's design, that Peter's communicating to the people about how to live in a really hard society. And last week, we saw that Peter charged the Christians with their marching orders. This is what he told them. He commanded us to live differently from our lost neighbors. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God do we live. Peter says that the way to live in a society like this is to live to do the will of God instead of fulfilling the cravings of our human passions. And so we get to verse 7 and he kind of flips the switch and he starts to look at it more from a positive angle. How should we now live? I know a lot of people associate Christianity with rules and things to not do, but I think God's word is packed with so many encouragements about how we should live, his design for our lives. And so let's read 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. The um, Bibles that are, you'll find in the pews will have a different translation, so you can just follow along and you'll, you'll see what it says there. First Peter chapter 4 verse 7 says this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would fill our hearts, that we may understand this word that was given to us. God, we know this word was written thousands of years ago, and yet it still has power to change us, to convict us, to encourage us, to give us new hope, and to show us how we should live your design for our lives. So God, we pray this morning that you would do such things in our hearts. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. And so we're just going to go through it verse by verse. And if we look at the first part there, it says, the end of all things is at hand, the end of all things is at hand and so we just spent uh, some time there singing about jesus's return the trumpet that we will hear that will announce the coming of our lord and savior jesus christ he has promised us that he will return for those of you who are new to fellowship oshawa you know how much i love talking about jesus's return and it's a particular area of theology called eschatology which refers to jesus's return as christians We tend to get caught up in the timing of Jesus' return rather than on the fact that Jesus Christ will return and what that means for our lives. A lot of us take the commands to, to, to observe what's happening in our world, sometimes too far. We're told to watch and read the signs of the end times. But in order to correctly understand this, we must remember when Peter wrote this text and what he was meaning when he said these things, when he says the end of all things is at hand. Peter wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago, and he wrote it, like I said earlier, to the churches in Asia Minor as an encouragement for their suffering in the midst of great persecution. If you guys remember, uh, maybe a couple months ago, we preached through the the book of Matthew, and we covered the sacking of Rome, or sorry, the sacking of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. When Peter wrote this letter, this had not happened yet. So there was so much that could happen. Who knows the name of the the emperor who was in charge during this time? Nero was the emperor. Does anyone here know who came after Nero? What's that? Robert? No, it's definitely not Robert. Constantine came way later. We're looking at the emperor known as Vespasian. And Nero, he was known for burning Christians on stakes along the roads, in and out of towns. And so after crucifying them, he would put them on wooden stakes and he would light their bodies on fire using kerosene and he would leave them to burn so that people coming in and out of the towns would know that they were not welcome there. Vespasian took over in 69 AD and the year after he became the emperor, he ordered the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In year 81, Domitian took over, and Domitian was the emperor who was known for attempting to burn the Apostle John in a vat of boiling oil. Has anyone heard that story? Of course, it didn't work, and the Apostle Paul was sentenced to exile on the island of Patmos, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation, and so to the people reading the letter, living under Nero, as they observed the times, as they observed the world that they lived in at the time, they would have thought... If Peter is saying that the the end is at hand, it must be tomorrow. It must be next week. It must be maybe next year at the very worst. And they didn't have any idea that there would be several emperors that would follow Nero who would be significantly worse in their effect on the world. Fast forward and people have thought the same about a number of leaders Napoleon Bonaparte, if you read uh, Christian history about how the world reacted to uh, to Napoleon, he was considered as well to be one of those figures, people who would surely signal the end of the world. Many thought the same about men like Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler. With the existence of many of these types of men, we can see that our focus needs to not be on when, in trying to figure out the timing of Jesus' return, But to focus on how we should now live as we await the return of our Lord, who will bring justice to this world. There's been many times in world history where they thought it was the end. And yet in God's infinite timing, he keeps doing something different. And he'll raise up the church, and then the church will decrease, and the world will shift, and so on and so forth. The question then needs to be, if we can't figure out when this thing is going to happen, how should we live how should we be found when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns? Because he will return. When he comes back, how will he find us? This is what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this is what the result of it is. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so according to Paul, the way that we behave as we consider Jesus' return is to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's exactly what Peter has been telling us as well, right? That is how we stand in these times. We are told in the scriptures that we await our Jesus by living upright lives in this present age as we patiently await the coming age. Right? That's another term that Jesus uses in the coming age. That's what the world will look like after he comes. Now some of you might be saying, this is fairly obvious, man. Of course, this is very obvious. Except sometimes it doesn't seem that way. With the current events happening in the world and COVID-19 behind us, One would think that the overwhelming message from the church would align with Titus chapter 2. Except when we look at our behaviors, it doesn't always align. All it takes is a few minutes on Christian social media for even a second, and you'll see that it does not Instead of us digging deeper into the gospel and seeking the Holy Spirit to live upright lives, we have often traded in our blessed hope for endless speculation about when Jesus will return and we get caught up with things like the mark of the beast and the identity of the Antichrist. In other words, you can have a whole lot of people who can confidently tell you the day and the hour and the minute and the second that Jesus Christ will return, but when he gets here, they won't even recognize him. It is possible to speculate about all these things and not know the the Lord who you are patiently awaiting. Imagine a person knowing all of the details about Jesus' return, but have not put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. Imagine trying to identify the Antichrist, but realizing that you yourself are living anti to Christ's teaching in this world. It is possible for us to be in this place. And so church, and if this is your first time here, I want to put this forward to you as we think about the return of Christ. The word that I put forward to you is hope. And this is Peter's message for us today. It is about the hope that will be revealed to us at the coming of Christ. Good eschatology is about being able to square your shoulders and raise your head in confidence knowing that Jesus has come back to get you because he knows you and you know him and he loves you and has saved you. Amen? That's what hopeful eschatology is about. It doesn't breed fear and trembling. It doesn't breed this thing where we should just like, let's move out to to a field somewhere and just wait for Jesus' return. That's not what it looks like. We have to be confident, knowing that our Lord has saved us and he's coming back for us, amen? And so he's, he sets this up here, right? Peter sets this up. He's like, the end of all things is at hand, okay? So now you have to live a certain way. And so he says this, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. This is his command to us. This is how we wait for him. It's not a sitting and Just waiting for him and not doing anything. There is an active way for us to wait. Peter commands believers to be self controlled and sober minded, and he says that this in the light of their non believing neighbors who were driven by sensuality. They were driven by their lack of self control and drunkenness, their lack of sober mindedness. You could look back in the verses earlier and read it for yourself. You could see the culture that they lived in. But, church, Peter is calling us to more than just avoiding meaningless sex and getting drunk there's so much more to god's word than this so let's look at what he means when he commands us to be self-controlled and sober-minded we'll talk about self-control first and you know self-control is a really tough topic it's a really hard subject to to get into just show of hands who here struggles with self-control yeah the reason why we balk when we see this command, the re- we see the command to be self-controlled, and I think of all the fruit of the Spirit, of all the commands, this is the one that really gets us, because you know what? If we had self-control, we wouldn't sin, right? There would be no sin in this world if we had self-control. What makes self-control even more complicated is that all of us here, maybe family member or a friend or a co-worker, every one of us here can list a person who exhibits great self-discipline. Raise your hand if you know somebody in your life who is just like, you know, their health is on point or they can save money like no other person you know, right? And they're not necessarily Christian. We all can list people, other people, who make better decisions with their health, with their emotions, people who are temperate. We can list people who are better with their finances and more. I personally marvel at my Muslim friends who fast every year during the celebration of Ramadan. Once a year, our neighbors fast from food and other delights for 30 days while the sun is up. And I'm always blown away every time I have a conversation with them. You know, you get to day 20, and it's like, how do you do this, man? Because I know they're not Christian. I'm like, how do you do this? And their devotion, there is intensity to do this. There is a a strong will to do this right. Right. And I always walk away impressed by the devotion. The truth is, is that we as Christians do not have the patent. We do not have the trademark on self-control. There in the world is someone right now, probably in Tibet, who is a monk who is beating himself into submission in complete silence. There's people in the world who have never spoken or haven't spoken in years and years out of uh, you know, self-discipline. And so we as Christians do not have the patent on self-control. And for that reason, by way of human nature, I know that we as Christians often compare ourselves to others and we despair at the fact that we can't control ourselves. Who who can relate to that? You look around and you're like, man, I wish I could. Like that guy, that guy can, he's at the gym seven days a week. I can't do that. And so what does it mean that he's commanding us to do this? I think there are three things I want us to see about self-control. And the first one... Is that self-control is something that is promised to us in our salvation. Remember back in Titus 2, that I, the verses I just read a few minutes ago? I'll read it for you again. It says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And speaking of our salvation, it says that the salvation is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul shows us in this passage that once we get saved by the grace of God, we receive the Holy Spirit who will train us to renounce ungodliness and to live in a self-controlled manner. It is something that comes from being saved. We receive the Spirit, and He trains us. I know some of us wish that the training could be faster, but I assure you that while we often push back at God's or we, we, we ask God to train us and we ask him to build us up and to grow us, we often balk at his methods, amen? We're like, grow me. And he's like, boom, dead family member. No, not like that, right? And that's what happens. The pushback I anticipate is to start thinking this. We, we think about these things. We, we start to think, if I'm struggling to exercise self-control, does that mean I'm actually not a Christian? Who's ever thought that? Who's doubted their salvation because maybe they just can't get the results they want out of their lives. As we grow as Christians, we must all face this tension between two different realities. And it's actually one reality, but it seems like they oppose each other. On one hand, God has promised to complete the good work that he has started in our lives. Amen? He has promised that. And he has a responsibility and a duty and takes great pleasure at finishing this work that he started in our lives every single one of us who know Jesus Christ as our lord and savior he takes great pleasure and joy in growing us on the other hand we are also commanded to do what to work out our fear with our salvation with fear and what and so we we sometimes we sit in this tension of god you're going to finish this work in me but i have to work too like is it you is it me is it both of us? If so, how, right? In what ways do we work together to finish this good work? Without both of these realities held in tension, we risk falling into one of two ditches. The first side of the ditch is we think that self-control is something I must muster on my own end as I work out my salvation. Who, who here has ever fallen into that? White knuckle, I just have to try harder. I can't control it, I just have to do better right you hear that in the world all the time do better right that's the message we get just do better if you don't have it's because you're not doing good it's not it's because you're making bad decisions and everything is a result of your of your of your decisions i must muster it on my end and yet paul lists self-control as a fruit of the spirit something that only the spirit of god can produce in a christian's life So it's not something that we can just produce or muster in our own flesh. It's impossible. On the other hand, we can sit here waiting for the Spirit to produce the fruit of self-control in our lives without realizing that we must work. Colossians 1.29. Chris, I know you love this verse. Paul says that he struggles with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. In other words, we must pursue, we must struggle with the energy that he provides for us if that makes sense he gives us energy so that we can struggle he gives us strength so that we can pursue he gives us desire so that we can work sometimes we think about self-control as a quality sometimes we think about it like it's something we either have or we don't have like it's black hair or you know size 15 shoes it's not something that is fixed Self-control should be seen as a discipline. It is something that we all have because of the work of the Spirit, but also by the work of the Spirit, it's something that we can grow in because it belongs to us in the gospel. Amen, church? I just want to start with that because I think we hear these messages and we feel despair, like I can't do that. But he has promised us that he will do it in us. Okay? So that's, that, that's the foundation that we start with. It's the promise that he will produce the self-control in this lifetime. The second thing we see about self-control in God's word is that he has grace for us as we pursue self-control. The fact of the matter is that as human beings, we all have different struggles. We all come from different places and we grow at different paces. The challenge is that like something, with self, something like self-control, we often struggle the most when we compare ourselves to others. We use others as the golden standard for why I can or can't do anything. This is why social media can be so devastating to so many people. Take Instagram, for example. It's full of so many people who are only publicly presenting their wins, showing off to the world all of the ways they were able to practice self-control and sacrifice and hard work and determination. And we pseudo-worship these people as hustlers. Look at their hustle. Look at their grind. I'll sleep when I'm dead. That kind of, you know, that kind of determination right they really made something out of their lives look at that guy that guy is the best i wish i had 10 percent of his determination i could do so much but i bet you none of those people use social media to show off to the world the various ways in which they failed when's the last time you did that you know when's the last time you po- you you posted a picture of a burnt piece of food on your facebook or your instagram really botched this one today look at this world Nobody does those things, right? Ah, my jeans don't fit anymore. Post that up. Nobody does that, right? That is not the way we use social media. I discovered this quote this week by an author named John Bloom, and it's something that I really wanted to pass on to you guys. This is what he says. He says, let's acknowledge that we are complex beings, and numerous factors can play into our capacities for self-discipline, our genetics, our conditioning, past trauma, various kinds of mental health struggles, and many other issues all affect us to differing degrees. And God understands how they affect each of us. Church, I can say confidently two things about us as a church and everyone who's here. Number one, and it's the one that's most obvious, is that we have a long way to go when it comes to our holiness. I don't have to tell you that. I don't think so anyways. But number two is, despite this, I am also confident that God is pleased when you practice self-control. And God is able to be pleased whenever we practice self-control while not being pleased when we sin. I know I struggle with this. You know, you can make 20 right decisions and you make one really bad sin at the end of the day and you think that's it. Right? God is angry with me. But God is greater than us. And he doesn't follow our human tendencies. He can be pleased while still not being pleased with your sin, right? He can look at your life and say, wow, this person is really trying to serve me. This person is, what does it say? Struggling with all the energy that I am giving them, and yet they sinned. And I am willing to bet that that statement applies to the majority of the people in this church. Biblical self-control means that we celebrate God-producing self-control in our lives while repenting when we inevitably fail this is why first john 1 9 says that if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to what forgive us god is pleased not by the times when we do practice control not only by the times when we do practice self-control but also when we in faith go to him with a penitent heart ready to admit that we struggle church god has grace for us he has grace for us he has grace for you and church, while we have not arrived in our holiness, I can confidently say that for those of you in this church that I know, I can testify to the fact that many of you are growing in your self-control. I look at your lives, I look at your choices, you are growing. Sometimes our own lives, when we look at it, it's like gardening. When you're a kid, you're out there, you're looking every five minutes, and you're like, it's not growing. It's not growing. And sometimes we look at our lives that way, Right? We're like, it's not growing. You put the water on to boil. Two seconds later, you're like, it's not boiling, right? I'm sure somebody will give me the quote for that. What is it? A watch pot never boils? My dad would be so pleased with quotes. I can testify to the fact that many of you are growing in your self-control, even if all you can see are the times when you are not in self-control. I witness daily how many of you are opting to follow Jesus with your lives. And many of you have come a long way, and I'm personally very proud of the fact that you look more like Jesus than when I first met you, all of you. More importantly, God is pleased by both your obedience and your repentance. And church, I just want to put that in front of you. God is pleased both by your repentance and your obedience. Like, that is great news, right? That is amazing news because... Both are done in faith in his son Jesus. Amen? The last thing I will say about self-control is that while many people in the world can produce self-control, the type of self-control that God seeks is one that ultimately pursues him. Like I said, many of us can list many people who are able to discipline themselves to accomplish their goals. But though there are many people who can do that, God is calling us to a greater prize than what the world is pursuing. 1 Corinthians 9, verses. 24 to 27, this is how Paul describes self-discipline. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to perceive or receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. Paul uses this illustration of the athlete and says that they run in a way that they should obtain their prize. This is just like anyone we know in the world. They work hard and pursue success. This is a lot of people, right? All athletes and other successful people do this. And Paul says their motivation is to receive a perishable wreath, right? A trophy, the word wreath is maybe lost on us but trophy medal right and so herein lies the difference between christian self control and human self control it is the prize that we race for paul describes our race as one for an imperishable prize for those who have been with us in the series the language of imperishable should be familiar to you right paul and sorry peter has called many things imperishable in this letter, right? It points back to how Peter described the inheritance that our Lord Jesus has for us. And he says that that imperishable inheritance is not like gold or silver, but one that is imperishable. Both Paul and Peter are talking about our everlasting life with Jesus, one that Jesus himself purchased for us, not with silver, but by his precious wife by his precious blood when he died on our behalf. And so for that reason, Paul says that his life is not lived aimlessly like an athlete running without a finish line or like a boxer without an opponent. Instead, Paul's motivation, whether it's spiritual or physical or financial, is to pursue the imperishable prize that God promises him. In other words, Paul is driven forward by glorifying God and keeping Jesus' commands. And so church, if for some reason after this message you go home and you're like, Man, I am, pep to, I am I am. ready to do this. You know, you go online, you download the app, you're like, okay, Bible reading plan, locked in, day one. Some of you guys go on, you Google, meal plan, I'm going to do this, right? Some of you guys are going to, you know, maybe you want to learn an instrument, I don't know. All the things you're aspiring to, new budget, new meal plan, whatever. You're like, I'm going to meal prep, this is it. All good things, I mean, mostly all good things. But I encourage you to encourage you to ask yourself this question. What is the ultimate prize of my self-control? What am I aiming for here? Am I doing this for my own pleasure? Am I doing this just for me? Or is there more to this? You know, half the times where we run out of gas, like, who can relate to that? January 1st comes, you're like, new plan, new me, right? New year, new me. You do this, get the plan going, you go to the store, you pick up the new notebook, the new calendar, you're like, I got this. And then, you know, January 10th, you're like, okay, I'm behind by a day in the reading plan. And then February, you're like, all right, I'll just skip to February. right? And then March comes and you're like, oh, find another plan. Right? I'm going to do something a little bit more attainable. Half the time this happens in our lives is not because we just lack self-control. It's because the prize we are pursuing at the end is not valuable to us. We look at the prize and we're like, that's a lot of sacrifice man i don't know that that's a lot and so if we're pursuing things like health if we're pursuing things like finances god has wired it in our hearts to not just be satisfied with vanity or to be satisfied with you know a little bit of money or to be satisfied with organization those are all good things i think but the way he is wired and the way he has trained us as his people is to only be satisfied by him. And so if we are pursuing any of those goals and they lack him, then they will ultimately not be satisfying enough for, me, for us to pursue them. And so anything you guys set out to do, we have to filter it through that question. Does this glorify God? In what way does this draw me to him? And suddenly your pursuit of health changes, right? It's not just about looking good at the beach. It's about asking God, how do I steward my body for your kingdom? And now the motivation is a million times bigger, right? And So church, we must be ultimately motivated by glorifying God. And this is ultimately the most satisfying pursuit under the sun. So that's self-control. Next, let's look at sober-mindedness. And so in our world, sobriety means we are not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. That's usually what we think about when we see the word sobriety. And when someone is drunk, I think it points to a lack of, a, of various types of awareness. I think when I see the word sober-minded, I also think of the word aware or awareness. And so I'm not going to ask you guys to raise your hand if you've been drunk before. Who here has seen someone drunk? Yeah? You've been in the vicinity or in the you know catchment of, a, of, of somebody who is drunk. Okay. So for somebody who is drunk, the first thing we notice is that they lose self-awareness. They don't realize what they're doing. They lose control of their bodies. They are unaware of how they exist in their environment. This is why you look at a drunk person, they stumble around their bodies. They've lost control of their bodies. They don't know how to control themselves, right? And second, when we are drunk, we lose awareness of other people. We start to see others differently. We become unaware of their needs or their existence. Drunk people often don't know how their actions affect others. And so when we put these things together, we get a glimpse of how Peter is guiding us. Because remember, he's thinking about the culture when he's saying, be sober-minded. He's thinking about the drunken revelries that are happening in the the culture around him. We're not only commanded to be self-controlled, but we're also commanded to be sober-minded as we navigate this world for Christ. And so on the word of awareness, I want to put us onto three types of awarenesses that we must have. The first one is we must be aware of God and what he's doing in this world. Jesus Christ is the ultimate setter of reality, and we must be keenly aware of him. And so the reason why we read God's word is not because it's a good habit or, you know, he has some good lessons for us or, you know, I'll feel good about myself. God's word itself tells us the reason we read God's word is so that we can tune our hearts and our minds to him. Right, We can attune, or maybe the Old Testament word would be, incline your hearts towards me. Who's, who's heard that before? Incline your heart to his law. When we read, we ask ourselves the question, who is God? And every time we read the scriptures, if we go into it with that question at the forefront, and we seek that answer again and again, when we dive into his word, God gives us awareness of him. We say, who are you, God. You ask that question, there will never be a day where you open your Bible and he doesn't answer that question. There's a lot of other questions we like to ask, like, who am I? What's going on in the world? And we read it and we leave confused. But church, I guarantee you, if you open your Bible and you say one question, who are you, God? Show me yourself. Show me who you are. Who are you? We will never leave disappointed. Ever, ever, ever. He will always answer that question. You don't need a Bible reading plan. You don't need a curriculum. You don't need a Bible study guide. You don't need a commentary. You don't need a lexicon. If you go in it, ask that one question. Who are you? He will answer you. Never miss. You will never miss with that question. And that's what he does. When we incline ourselves to his word, he gives us awareness of himself. God awareness. God awareness is the first step to sober-mindedness. But once we get into his word, he starts to reveal other things. He starts to reveal and give us awareness of ourselves. Sober-mindedness means seeing yourself for who you actually are. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3. He says, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with what kind of judgment? Sober judgment. When we take God out of the equation, now we have no standard to compare ourselves to. And so when we take God out of the equation, when we don't have God awareness, our self-awareness becomes this thing where we think that we are giants. We think that we have all of the answers, that the purpose of life is found in us, that I can do everything, right? The scriptures say, I can do all things. Yeah, but the world without God just says, I can do all things, right? Right? That's not the answer. And yet, at the same time, I know that some of us, myself included, are tempted by the complete opposite thing. I am grateful to have a loving wife and loving friends in my life who rebuke me for saying things like, I am bad at everything. Who's fallen into that trap? Who falls into that ditch? You think you're bad at everything. Church, it is not humble to deny the work that God is doing in your lives, it's not humble. It's actually pride, right? To say that I do nothing good, that I'm just worthless or rotten, I have nothing, that's not biblical either. Rather, we must think of ourselves as sober judgment. We must acknowledge the great things that God is doing. And then we must acknowledge and confess our sins to God. And in both of those things, we can correctly assess our lives for what they actually are. Church, be grateful for the fruit that God is producing in your lives and humbled by the fact that you have not yet arrived. This is good self-awareness. God is glorified in our lives when we thank him for the work he is doing, which include how he lovingly rebukes and disciplines us. We must be self-aware. And third, we must be aware of others. You know, our society is addicted to self-awareness at the cost of awareness of God and others. And so when you take God-awareness out, and you have no, self-aware, no awareness of other people, it becomes narcissism. Self-awareness without God-awareness and others' awareness is narcissism. To be so self-focused that you lose sight of others is self-centered. It will not serve you well in this world. Rather, we must be aware of other people in our lives, aware of their needs, aware of how our actions affect them, aware of the ways that God is working in our lives and how God is using them to bless you. This is what church is, right? We don't just sit in our house and read a Bible about God. We come together, and we worship him together, and we study his word together, and he gives us awareness of himself. Then you start to see yourself for who you really are. Then you look out at the congregation, and now you start to see other people. You know, some people walk around in this world without any of those awarenesses. They don't know God, and in turn, they don't know themselves. And in turn, they don't know anyone else. God-awareness is where we need to start. We need to submit ourselves to his word. And from there, we can start to see who we are as people. And so that's how I define sober-mindedness. It's a realistic clarity about God, about others, and about ourselves. Amen? Last point. I'm, I'm almost done, I promise. Jesus will return. And the way we await his return is by being self-controlled and sober-minded but then peter goes on to explain that one of the reasons we need to exercise these things is for the sake of our prayers and so to demonstrate the importance of this i want to point us to matthew 26 what happens in matthew 26 anyone we were just there it's been a while actually all of it no it's a little bit after it's right after that right after what happens It's Passover, right? It's Passover. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and he feeds them, and he initiates the the Lord's Supper. He says that someone is going to betray him, and then they get up, and where do they go? After the upper room, where do they go? They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 38 says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now what happens in the story? Jesus goes And he prays to his father and he expresses his sorrow and his troubledness, but he also says, Not as I will, but as you will. He prays and then he comes back and he finds his loyal friends in deep prayer for him, right? Is that what happens? No. Not amen. Verse 40 And he came to the disciples and he found them what? They're sleeping, they're pulling timber. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me for one hour. You could not watch with me for one hour. In the, NI, or the KJV version in, in, the, in the pews, it will say, be self-controlled and watch. And watch. Jesus says, you could not watch with me for one hour. So Peter gets the point. Jesus leaves to pray again, and he comes back a second time to discover that the disciples are deep in a prayer meeting this time, right? Second time, they're like praying. Everybody's praying, right? Absolutely incorrect. Fiction. Verse 43, And he came back again, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And now you guys know how the rest of the story goes. My point is this. When Peter tells us that the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded... Do not hear this as just a, a thing to say. This is not just a thing that a person says. Peter, when he's writing this, I speculate, though it's because the language sounds very familiar, Peter is thinking about the time when he was not self-controlled or sober-minded as his Lord and Savior asked him to pray. Keep watch with me, Peter. Stay awake with me, Peter. I need you, Peter. Stay here with me. We have to hear this from a big brother who is saying, don't make the same mistake that I made, guys. You know, on one hand, we could see that that the author says that their eyes were heavy. And we can all relate to that, right? Long supper. It's nighttime. You get to this dark garden. Who here has fallen asleep in awkward places because they were so tired? Who here has done that? Like as an adult. Not like when you're a kid. Everyone did that. Right? I have literally gently rested my head on the soft shoulders of dozens of hospitable and not-so-hospitable strangers on the TTC after a long day of school. Many years getting to know people, very intimate on the bus. I can't even count the times on my hands and feet. And yet, look at what Jesus was asking of his friends. Jesus was so sorrowful. Because he knew what type of death he was looking at. Jesus was staring down the barrel, not only of one of the most painful forms of human execution. But spiritually, he was also on his way to drink the full cup of God's wrath. Jesus is sorrowful. He is troubled in his friendship with Peter. And the rest, he says, keep watch with me, Peter. Be with me. I need support. Jesus was not asking for Peter to pray to God to change God's mind. Jesus was inviting Peter into what was happening. Jesus was reaching out to Peter and inviting him into friendship. This was a very intimate thing that he was asking for. It's not like he said, Peter, pray for me or I'm going to die. And then Peter doesn't pray and then he's like, man, you had one job, Peter, and you messed me up. That's not what happened. Peter is called to Jesus' side as a friend. I can only imagine the loneliness that Jesus felt discovering that his friends had fallen asleep, not once, but again and again, despite him needing them in that hour. I mention this story because I think it is an accurate picture of what prayer looks like. There's so much to be said about prayer, so much to be said about prayer. But I think what we see here is that Peter understood firsthand how much a lack of self-control and sober-mindedness affects our prayers because of how it affected him in the garden with Jesus. Peter understood the role of prayer in the age of his people. And so today, this morning, he speaks to to us with the same urgency. Oftentimes, prayer is positioned as a way to ask God for things. And certainly, a lot of the scriptures tell us that we lack because we do not ask. And we don't ask because we don't believe he will answer. And the scriptures say that we ask so we can spend it on our selfish pursuits. All of these are true. We are called to ask. So church, don't leave here saying, oh, you know, the pastor said you shouldn't ask God for things. That's not what I'm saying. But prayer is more than asking. It is more. It's not less than, but it's definitely more. And we underestimate the role of prayer as a part of our fellowship with Jesus. In the garden, Jesus was aligning his will with his Father's will. But functionally, another one was to experience intimacy with his Father. As he was about to be cut off by his father and abandoned. And so the lesson we learn from this morning is this: in order to deepen our relationship with God, we must seek self-control and sober-mindedness. We pursue self-control because it's part of the gospel and a fruit of the Spirit. We must repent of our lack of self-control and gratefully praise him for the self-control he is producing. And we must also pursue God awareness, self-awareness, and others' awareness. But ultimately, church, we need to see that our self-control and sobriety, the prize that we are running to in this race, is connection to our Father. That's what prayer is. We view prayer as a chore, but prayer is the time where you get to connect with your Heavenly Father. In a minute, I'll close off in prayer, but I want you to understand the, 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 the size or the magnitude of what we are doing. We're going to bow our heads, and for a lot of us, it's just a thing we do. But for a moment in time, we will express our hearts to the creator of the universe. The one who spoke you into existence. The one who knows how many individual follicles of hair are on your head. The one who saved you from your sins and gave himself to die for you. This is not something that we need to be cavalier about. This is an amazingly powerful privilege that we have been given. You know, in the Reformation, there was a, uh, as we come up to the Reformation on, it was a Tuesday, right? Um, Men and women were not allowed to pray. And yet today, this Sunday, we get to pray out loud, not through a man, but through a man, right? Not the priest, but through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He allows us to pray to our Father. And so, guys, as we consider prayer and self control and sobriety, I urge you guys not to view prayer as a functional thing that you just do. And you don't just pursue self-control because you get to have some cool outcomes in your life and you get to succeed in a couple of things. Your self-control and your sobriety literally connects you to God. It brings you to God. And Peter paid the price, but then Jesus restored him, right? And so, church, in, clo- in closing, I ask you this question. Are you pursuing self-control and sobriety so that you can be close to God. At the end of the day, you may lose everything in this world, but we will never lose our relationship with God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we pray to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and it is a great privilege, a blessing. And God, we pray for forgiveness because we waste this blessing that you give to us every day. We know that our flesh resists so much bowing to you. And yet you gracefully invite us to pray to you again and again. And so, Father, as we leave this morning, I pray that we would not see prayer with you as a feeble, useless task. Give us some grit and some discipline, God, some self control to be able to continue to pray, to pray continuously, to pray honestly, to pray intimately. I pray that we, this morning, would view prayer as a time where we can be honest with you because you already know us. And so, God, I pray that we would pray. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.